you're listening to a podcast and you're listening to this podcast. So I'm pretty sure you are not afraid of laughing and some tough talk. And because you're a listener, you're probably an audiobook listener, too. I know I've been listening to audiobooks since they were called Books on Tape. And that's why I'm going to tell you about the audiobooks that my company, Flamingo Audiobooks, produce. I'm currently working on a spy thriller series by John D. Trudell, whose protagonist is a former CIA guy sheep-dipped with a new legend, George Raven who now works in deep black ops. His role is to protect the country's foremost paranormal, Josie, who has scary, smart insights into some of the nation's biggest secrets. It sounds crazy, but Trudell makes it all work. It's amazing. I've got an offer for the first 10 of you who email me at victoria at victoriataft.com. You receive a free copy of the latest Raven series books, Raven's Redemption on Audible. Put free audiobook in the subject line. Of course, the audiobooks are also available on Amazon as well. Raven's Run is also out if you want to start from the beginning. And Raven's Resurrection is in production right now. If you like spy thrillers like the ones written by Vince Flynn, Kyle Mills, Brad Thor, Ben Coase, you're going to love the Raven series. It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. Welcome to the Adult in the Room podcast. I'm Victoria Taft and listeners of this podcast and know the radio work I've done and the writing I've done over at PJ Media know I have followed the Kyle Rittenhouse case out of Kenosha, Wisconsin since the very beginning. Of course, he's the person who was accused of murdering two people and wounding another, a third man, at the Kenosha riots on August 25th in 2020. Well, today we have an emergency adult in the room podcast about the jury getting the Kyle Rittenhouse case. And I'm going to be talking with Andrew Bronca. He's a the person who's literally written the book on the law of self-defense. He is an attorney and he defends people in these kinds of situations using self-defense all the time. Also, I'll have a breakdown of the case in a forthcoming Adult in the Room podcast coming up in just a few days. I'm working on that right now. Okay, so in my very first Adult in the Room podcast, I asked the famous weapon snatcher about the Rittenhouse case. And he's that badass retired Marine who was protecting a news crew during the riots, these in Seattle. And he literally grabbed rifles out of the hands of Antifa rioters in Seattle who had broken into a cop car and gotten a hold of them. He said Rittenhouse acted solely out of self-defense, though he didn't like him going there that night. If you want to check out that conversation all those months ago, definitely look up the John Karugi uh, weapon snatcher interview that I did with him back oh, all those months ago on the Adult in the Room podcast. Well, anyway, I've had Andrew Bronca on the 
the law of self-defense, discussed this case with me several times on very various forms of media. And I think I've even had Robert Barnes on to talk about the Rittenhouse case as well as the Strickland case. So please check out all of my work on the Rittenhouse case over at PJ Media, where more than one million people have done the same so far. And I'll do as much cross-posting over at victoriataft.com. That's where you can always find my latest podcasts and information so that there's a bank of information in one place. The case, of course, is reminiscent in many ways of the Michael Strickland case, which in this case, it was a person who was reporting on the mob back in the days when nobody really knew who Antifa was except the people in the cult. And he was jumped by a mob, not once, but twice, actually. And he forestalled the second mob attack of him by withdrawing his own weapon. And he never fired a shot, held back the mob who was coming for him. And for his efforts of saving himself, he was thrown in jail. So that's why I was most interested in the Rittenhouse case. The mob mentality, the fact that it's a political trial by an entire municipality hell-bent on putting a guy behind bars, regardless of whether or not he deserves it. So here's our next installment of the Kyle Rittenhouse case with law of self-defense attorney and expert, Andrew Bronca. I hope you find it informative. Thank you so much for coming on the Adult in the Room podcast again and for doing an interview, which I'll use excerpts from for PJ Media. And I wanted to sort of start with a broad question for you today, and that is, how was the lawyering in this particular case? You mean during the course of the trial generally? Yes, during the course of the trial. And we can go just overview and then more specifically the, the uh, closing arguments, closing statements. Sure. I mean, I heard a lot of criticism of the uh, of the uh, defense attorneys during the course of the trial. I watched every minute of the trial, and I didn't think those criticisms were were very valid. To be honest with you, um, they seem to be made largely by people who don't actually know how lawyers work in a courtroom. I mean, they were expecting objections at every theoretical possibility for an objection. That's just not how things are done. Uh, so I, I thought the uh, defense did uh, did mostly fine over the course of the trial. I was I was frankly less satisfied with the uh, state of the defense closing argument. However, I saw your post on that over at Law of Self Defense and Legal Insurrection, where you've been posting, and of course I listened to your podcast very faithfully. And you were dis- you were not happy with that because you felt that they had failed to tie a bow on several issues. Can you tell me a few of those issues? Well, yes. Yeah, so I don't mean to suggest they did a bad job. That would be overstating the case. They did they did a fine job, um, but my expectation was for a perfect job or as close to perfect as a human lawyer can get, and I felt they they fell short of that mark. It's a very high mark, but the state. The stakes here are very high. It's a, a 18 year old is looking at spending the rest of his life plus five years in a cage. Uh, and when the stakes are that high, my expectations for the closing, because remember, the closing is the very last opportunity the defense will ever have to sell their narrative of innocence to the jury. And I think it should be just crushingly effective. And this one wasn't. I, I think it was. Uh, I think Attorney Richards did, did fine on the facts. I think he touched on all the relevant facts that were important to the defense. He had some nice taglines in there. This hocus pocus out of focus was great. I thought that was awesome. Um, but he didn't really tell 
the defense story in story form. It wasn't really a, a narrative with an arc. And, and humans are most amenable to being convinced by story form telling, uh, not simply stepping through the witnesses of the trial and the sequence that they were presented. The jury's already seen that. They want it all brought together in some kind of cohesive narrative, cohesive mm. story, where they can feel comfortable coming back with the verdict that the defense is looking for. The other thing that troubled me with the closing was really the tone of the closing. It was rather angry and, and belligerent. And believe me, there is good reason for the defense to be angry about this prosecution. It is a travesty of justice. But the point of the closing argument is not to vent your frustrations on the prosecution. Um, the point of the closing argument is to convince any jurors who are not yet on your side. I think the whole anger tone works fine for jurors who are on your side and equally angry, angry about this travesty. But I don't think the anger approach helps with people who may not yet be on your side, who, who need to be... Um, seduced over to your side they they'll find the anger off-putting because they're not feeling that anger if they were they'd already be on your side they may be feeling some degree of sympathy for the um for rosenbaum his family for huber his family for uh, gage grosskreutz his injury um and you have to be able to appeal to their sense of sympathy Yes, and the, him bringing up the shooting of the man which sparked the riots was probably not the greatest idea in the world. That was just a clunker, I felt, in the final arguments for the defense attorney. And I, I just don't know what the point of that was, because it's not legally relevant. It's not like because that shooting had seven shots and it was found justified that that would mean this one was justified. It, the, the two are completely unrelated to each other. So on legal merits, it doesn't help. And I don't think on the rhetorical argumentative merits, it helps because it doesn't help you with anybody who's not yet on your side. Listen, we know if you've looked at the Jacob Blake case at all, at the actual evidence, that was a justified shooting of Jacob Blake by that police officer. But the media has propagandized that into some kind of social injustice shooting by a cop of a black man. And a lot of people believe that propaganda. And if there's a member on the jury who believes that propaganda, who believes that was an unjust shooting, you're not doing your client any favors in that juror's eyes by analogizing your client's use of force to that event. Andrew, what, what about the dropping of the gun charge? How big was that? Was that just a small thing or was that a huge thing? Well, you have to kind of understand where all that came from. So uh, I actually did a legal analysis of the gun charge a week after this event, and it was obvious to me it was nonsense. It simply mm -hmm. didn't apply to Kyle Rittenhouse. It should never have been brought. It should have been dismissed long ago. Um, it, I'm, I'm appreciative that the judge finally came around to my way of thinking and ultimately did dismiss the charge on the day of, of uh, you know jury of closing arguments. Yeah. Uh, but the reason it was brought wasn't for the legal merits. It never had any legal merits. The reason it was brought was because of the inherent weakness of the prosecution case here. So they knew it was going to be a self-defense case. Well, there's basically two ways to attack a claim of self-defense. And keep in mind, the state has to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. So you can attack self-defense by attacking either the defense itself. So the defense is made up of a number of elements. If you can defeat any one of those elements, you've defeated self-defense. But here, the elements of self-defense on every one of these counts in the criminal charge were, were so favorable for the defense. 
it was overwhelmingly clear that each of those incidents was lawful self-defense, that the prospects of the state being able to disprove the self-defense itself beyond a reasonable doubt was vanishingly small. But there's another way you can do it, a backdoor way to do it, and that's if you can prove provocation, that the defendant provoked the conflict through some unlawful conduct. Because if you can do that, then you've tipped over the self-defense chessboard. Self-defense doesn't apply anymore because a provoker simply has no privilege of self-defense. So you don't have to worry about the elements of the self-defense anymore. You don't have to attack those if you can prove provocation beyond a reasonable doubt. But the provocation in question isn't just poor judgment or a mean word. It has to be an actual unlawful act. But they didn't have an unlawful act. Well, except, for this, except for this gun possession charge. I see. So the gun possession charge is what gave them entree to the provocation. Right. But in addition to that, they had the uh, hocus pocus out of focus photo. Right. From... But they, they didn't start with that. Oh, right? no, they didn't. When the trial started, they didn't have that. That's why they were hanging on to the gun possession charge. They finally gave up the gun possession charge, by the way. And I, I don't know if you watched it, but finally the, the prosecution uh, assistant, D.A. Krause, basically said, uh, we'll just concede on that. I was I wish I mean. I because was they didn't stunned. need it anymore. They what didn't need it anymore because they, now they had the hocus pocus picture. Yes. And the other thing that really, this this reminds me of all the unethical behavior by the prosecution, maybe the defense, but I wasn't looking necessarily at that. But were you stunned at all of the games and lies told and... and especially in closing arguments by the prosecution, mischaracterizing evidence. Uh, well, saying that, and the and the law. Yeah, it's it's really and there were flat misstatements of law throughout the uh, the prosecution closing, and people should keep in mind, the, the the prosecution and the defense don't play on an even playing field and shouldn't. The advantage should be to the defense. That's why it's the state that has to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt because they come to the case with the inherent power of the entire state behind them. So we give offsetting advantages to the defense to balance out that relationship. And one of the things we do to balance things out is the the defense is expected to use any trick they can think of to prevent the state from meeting its burden of proving their client guilty. The defense is wily and sneaky and tricky, and that's perfectly acceptable within, of course, the normal ethical bounds of, of lawyer conduct. The prosecution, is their role is not to win by any means necessary. It's not just to score another win on the score box. Their mission is not supposed to be just winning for the sake of winning. It's supposed to be justice, which means if winning would be an injustice, they're not supposed to pursue that. But that's what we saw in this trial. It was a political trial, and the uh, ADA Binger, Thomas Binger, said so during the trial, which was a sort of shocking admission. I mean, we all knew it, but the fact that he invoked it when he was cross-examining a witness, which was, uh, which was, it was telling, I think. Well, sometimes he would say it was political. Sometimes he would say it wasn't. There was a lot of that by the prosecution. Sometimes it was critically important that uh, an event was never caught on camera, like that we never caught the threat from Rosenbaum to kill Kyle Rittenhouse. Right. That was never caught on camera. That was super important to the prosecution. But it wasn't important to the prosecution that there was no video footage of Kyle Rittenhouse pointing his gun at people all night, right. as the prosecution claimed. Th then the lack of video was, well, that's you know no big deal. Uh, so the, it, it's what you do when you have a weak case. You, you, you grasp at straws. 
Yeah, it's and that's old, what the prosecution did, right? The, the old pound the table pound adage the table. from the law. Well, uh, let's go over a couple of things that I think need to be sorted out for listeners right now, because there was so much said in the final arguments, uh, the closing arguments uh, by Binger, as well as his uh, ADA Krauss. And they were that Kyle Rittenhouse should have taken a beating, that Kyle Rittenhouse brought a gun to a, a fist fight, that Kyle Rittenhouse was not in any way, shape or form uh, subjected to possible uh, bottle, great bodily injury or death as a result of these beatings, and and that he should have just stood there like a non-coward and taken it. Your take. Please disabu- disabuse people of this ridiculous notions. These- well, the, mis- the misstatements of the law were really egregious. The notion that um, you can't be justified in shooting an unarmed person under any circumstances uh, is simply not the law. Uh, hundreds of people in America are killed every year by fists and boots. Uh, someone who doesn't have an artificial weapon can and frequently does kill the person they're fighting. Uh, so you have to look at the totality of the circumstances to determine whether or not there was a deadly force threat. And by the way, Joseph Rosenbaum was not unarmed. He was arming himself. He was arming himself with a rifle, with Kyle's rifle. He didn't just poke Kyle or shove Kyle. He was fighting Kyle for possession of that, of that rifle. And in, in combination with the credible testimony of the death threats made to Kyle by Rosenbaum just earlier that evening, his possession of that rifle, that's a reasonably perceived threat imminent threat of death or great bodily harm. So this notion that Rosenbaum was unarmed is is farcical. And frankly, the defense could have done a better job, should have done a better job on that, because Krauss in particular on his rebuttal hit that point over and over and over again. And listen, a, a an actual fair, impartial, rational jurors, they're going to see through that. But that's not who we're concerned about here. We're concerned about the juror who's feeling some sympathy towards the state, who's looking for a path to convict. And you you have to prevent the prosecution from offering that one juror the path to not vote for acquittal and end up with a hung jury. And they also had lesser and included charges uh, in the offing as well. And I was unclear as to how much the defense could fight off something like that. You know, I, I honestly don't know. The rules for that vary so much from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. I don't know what the standard of practice is in Wisconsin. In most jurisdictions, the, the defense has nothing to say about it. The the lesser included are simply automatically available to the prosecution. If they charged a higher level offense, and that was in the criminal complaint, and the defense has been informed of that higher level offense, well, then the defense is also informed of every lesser included, and they need to be able to be prepared to defend against those two. Uh, so normally, there's nothing that the defense can do about it. It's up to the state if they want it. Sometimes the state doesn't want the lesser included. Mm-hmm. Um, here, they obviously do. And frankly, that's usually a reflection of their lack of confidence in their ability to get the higher degree offense, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, one one last thing. I, I know you're probably up against it because everybody wants a PCU today in advance of the uh, uh, verdict. And that is, I heard Andy McCarthy say this, and I know he's not a courtroom reporter in local municipalities and he's not a law of self-defense guy like you are, but he made a smart point, I thought. And that was with respect to the provocation issue in the case he talked about the fact that Wisconsin has an open carry long gun policy and anybody can do that as long as they're of age, which Kyle uh, Rittenhouse was, uh, you know, part of that cohort. Um, 
And how was that provocation for everyone else and every other case? Um, and and no one else seems to feel that they need to go and beat somebody up for their gun like the Rosenbaum character did. How, how does that play? How was that? Was that even an issue, a consideration, a point to be made? Well, I mean, legally, it's not relevant because it, it the mere possession of the gun doesn't prov- provocation only matters if there's an immediate violent response to the provocation that's from a legal perspective that's what we mean by provocation we don't mean provocation broadly like you use it in normal english Mm. we mean there was some violent response and we can tie that to a prior act of provocation Uh, but kyle was carrying that gun around all night and was never attacked lots of other people were carrying guns all night and were never attacked so the overwhelming evidence is that a reasonable person would not perceive the mere carry of the ar rifle the open carry as something to provoke a violent response because it just never happened until it happened with Rosenbaum. Rittenhouse himself was on the stand and buttressed that provocation defense or uh, prosecution argument, didn't he? In what respect? Well, you... I, th- I think he uh, allowed as he may have turned his gun toward Zeminski and that sort of gave them entree to that that claim that he had provoked Zeminski and therefore somehow by, I don't know, maybe uh, Bluetooth or something, uh, Rosenberg. I mean, you know, and maybe telepathic waves or something. I, I, I just don't find it compelling. He didn't shoot at Rosenbaum halfway across the parking lot. He merely turned, perhaps pointed his gun at them. But pointing a gun at someone is not a use of deadly force. There are circumstances in which you can point the gun, it can be lawful, where shooting the gun would not yet be lawful um, as a defensive display of the firearm. Yep. Um, and he's already being pursued violently by a person who threatened to murder him earlier that evening. So I think pointing the gun under those circumstances as a defensive display is reasonable conduct. Putting putting uh, Kyle Rittenhouse on the stand, bad idea, good idea? You know... It's it's so hard to say. I mean, of course, the rule of thumb is you just never do that in a criminal defense trial because, frankly, most criminal defendants are criminals. Um, and, you know, they, they have long criminal histories and all of that becomes exposed if they're put on the witness stand because then they're just a witness like any other witness and they, they can be impeached, subject to cross-examination, all that. So normally you really can't put a criminal defendant on the witness stand for practical reasons. Um, it's a little different when you have as clean a defendant as Kyle Rittenhouse. You don't have that particular risk of a, some lengthy criminal record being exposed, but you still have other risks. Uh, the other risks include um, while you're subjecting him, and especially in this case, an 18-year-old kid, uh, to brutal cross-examination by a professional interrogator. I mean, that's what a prosecutor is in this context, an experienced professional interrogator uh, who can goad the defendant into outbursts into uh, presenting himself to the jury in a way that would be unfavorable, very damaging. Also, the prosecutor has in mind his closing already. He's thinking about the closing the whole trial. In fact, the whole purpose of the trial from a prosecutor's perspective or a criminal defense lawyer's perspective is really to provide the building blocks for the closing argument. The closing argument is the entire mission. The trial that we all watch and hear the testimony and all this stuff that we think of as the trial, that's just a building process to the ultimate part Mm. of the trial, which is the closing argument. So Prosecutor Binger, he has in mind what his closing argument is going to be. He knows exactly what words he would like to be able to repeat as having come out of the defendant's mouth that would support his 
closing argument. And he's going to ask questions phrased in a very particular way to try to compel that witness to say those particular words. And the witness has no idea how dangerous those particular words are to them. They're Mm -hmm. just answering questions. They don't know that they're putting a knife to their own throat on behalf of the prosecutor. And that risk exists no matter how innocent your client is. Uh, So that's a risk that can't be avoided, even when you're putting a kid like Kyle Rittenhouse on the witness stand. Now, the question is, I think it worked out fine, really. Uh, I think uh, Kyle presented himself very well uh, in in very difficult circumstances. I, I don't think a great deal of damage was done. But but you don't know that going in. So if the question is, was it the right decision going in to put him on the witness stand? I'd have to ask, well, what did you get? I mean, did you get something worth, not the actual outcome, but worth the possible risk, right? Right. Um, and, and that I don't see. Now, as it happens, it worked out okay. I don't think they took much damage. The jury got to see Kyle. Um, you know, he broke down on the stand. He, he came across, to my mind, as credible. Um, so I think in the end, it worked out okay. Um, I, it's harder to answer whether it was worth the risk of doing, though. Yeah. Did you want to predict the jury outcome at all? Oh, I never do that because uh, juries are dangerous and unpredictable creatures. Mm. Uh, but I will say this, uh, the deeper we go into deliberations, if we're, if they're still deliberating uh, deep into tomorrow, that's not a good sign for the defense. I will say, I just saw just moments before uh, we got together here, I saw a tweet from somebody I don't know, um, but it says in effect, uh, Giovanni Leigi it says the jury in the Rittenhouse trial has asked for 11 additional copies of the self-defense portion of the jury instructions. Oh, really? Uh, I, yeah, well, that's what the tweet says. So I don't know from personal knowledge, uh, but if that's accurately reported, uh, that would certainly seem favorable. Now, keep in mind, I, I have to mention, too, that I don't think the prosecution has any expectation of, of convincing 12 jurors of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. That's I just don't see that happening. I don't think they're trying to do that, really. I think what they're trying to do is find, identify the, what I would call the interested juror, the juror who's amenable to convicting on something uh, because they feel bad for the victims or their political views or whatever the case might be, but they're unwilling to do it with zero rationale. They're not going to put a kid in prison for the rest of his life for zero mm. rationale, but they don't need much rationale. They need, they need a little read of rationale. And I think what the prosecution is doing in much of its closing is just extending that thin reed, not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. They don't have that, but just an excuse for conviction, just enough for the interested juror to say, well, okay. And you only need the one because normally in a criminal prosecution, if there's a, if there's a hung jury and there's a mistrial, I'd say that's a win for the defendant because at least he didn't get convicted. Most, most of the clients are criminals. So don't get convicted. That's a win. This is a different kind of case. And a hung jury here is 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 stealing a just acquittal from Kyle Rittenhouse and giving this prosecutor the opportunity to do this all again yeah. and again and again until the end of time, until Kyle Rittenhouse is crushed into dust. Yeah. The judge can uh, dismiss with prejudice, correct? Well, in theory. So they, they filed the motion... Uh, Chirofasi filed a motion for dismissal with uh, prejudice, mistrial with prejudice, back when uh, I guess it was Binger was making reference to Kyle's exercise of his Fifth Amendment right. But the truth is, honestly, if that was going to happen, it would have happened right then. 
It, it's not going to happen after a verdict. Gotcha. Andrew Bronca, Law of Self-Defense. You'll find his writings over at Law of Self-Defense as well as Legal Insurrection, a wonderful website. And I belong to your website and I really appreciate your work. Thank you. My pleasure. Remember to subscribe, follow, rate five stars, and give me a great review over at your favorite podcast outlets, Apple, Google, and Spotify, to name the big boys. And follow me on social media. I'm over at Parlor, MeWe, Minds, Facebook, and Twitter, at Victoria Taft. Don't forget the Adult in the Room podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. At the Adult in the Room podcast, except Twitter only has room for the Adult in the, Adult in the, at Adult in the fine. It works. Get in touch with me at Victoria at victoriataft.com. Editing, mastering, advertising, technical support, and understanding for the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft is by 1A Cast. The music is gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for the case of Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by RC, and it is used by permission. Find RC on all social sites at Raps by RC, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and Instagram at Raps by RC. Imaging for the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft is by 1A Cast. Logo by Hageman Creative. Find him on Instagram. Photo of Victoria Taft is by Hilly Collective. The Adult in the Room podcast is produced by Flamingo Road Studios. All rights reserved.